Oh, you fucking want to be famous. <laughs> Guys are looking sharp. Zach Dingy, Tony Capoletti. Two Three Legs Podcast, where we share business tips, interview experts, and travel the world. This week on Two Dudes, Three Legs. Welcome back to the Two Dudes, Three Legs Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Capoletti. Zach Dingy is in Florida for the weekend. I think he's doing a little vacation, so he's not going to be joining us today. Reasonable reason. Yeah. Uh, but I am joined today by Christina Hurley. Oh, the full name. A doctor. Nah. A mother. Close to doctor. Definitely okay. a mother, yeah. A mother. <laughs> the founder and heart and soul of Less Leg, More Heart, the foundation I'm currently working, working with to give amputees blade legs. You feel like such a good hype man. I can't believe in all those things. Wow, that, you was, are. that was exciting. Are you not? No, yeah, but like to hear you say it and you have like the emphasis and the right syllable, it feels We gotta just, give mm. you your flowers. Yeah, I feel like I just did push-ups, you know? Well, I'm like excited to be here with you, so. <laughs> Likewise. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I kind of want to start with your story of becoming an amputee. Now, you were performing surgeries and giving amputations. Yeah. Correct? How weird is that? And now, it's, it's such a crazy coincidence that you went from performing them to undergoing one. Insane. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, sort of the two-cent tour, and we can delve deeper in whichever area is exciting. I um, worked in acute care medicine as a hospitalist physician assistant. So I uh, worked with doctors autonomously in a similar capacity, but I'm a mid-level. Um, and I loved it. The breadth of stuff was really exciting. And uh, you knew a lot of stuff, but a little bit about a lot of stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. the depth of what you knew is shallow and spread over a large area. And you knew enough to know that you didn't know what you needed to know and you would call a consultant on specialty cases. So in that period of time, I was like in my pinnacle of fitness. I was a CrossFitter. I had grown up in gymnastics, like very high level D1 cheerleader, like all the, wow. uh, the, the kind of cheer you see on the show Netflix now, not like the sideline stuff that probably people are perceiving, uh, like competitive stuff. And all of a sudden, sort of out of the blue, like I couldn't jog. Like there would be a workout with... Um, you know, pull-ups and kettlebell swings and a 200 meter run. And you'd repeat that a couple of times. And I would peel off the bar like way ahead, 45, 50 seconds ahead of the next athlete that was good. Wow. And they would lap me on the run, just 200 meters. That's like the, the long side of a, you know, track, one side of the track. Uh, and so it felt like my legs had cinder blocks and um, it was weird. And like my toes would go numb. I was still trying to do 5Ks, but I'd have to like stop. And it got to a point where I had a dog and I could barely get my dog around like one block because there was a little hill at the end because both of my calves would feel like I had a blood pressure cuff around my knees. And um, in the hospital, my um, patient, one of my patients overnight, I worked the overnight shift, they actually coded and they needed cardiac resuscitation and I physically couldn't get to the room. I had to sit on the floor, the nasty floor of a, ho- of a hospital room or, or a floor because my legs wouldn't take me. And so I was like, what's going on? And ironically, my mother, who has a past that like included some choices that made her a higher risk for plaque in her arteries, um, developed similar symptoms in the same leg of like foot feeling heavy, calf feeling tired. If I rest, it gets better. When I go further, faster, harder, it gets worse. Mm. Um, And it was ironic. So she ended up seeing a vascular surgeon by her referrals. And they said, you've got plaque in your arteries. We're going to put a stent in there. And it made her symptoms go away. So I'm like, well, you know, what are the chances? And also like, can I go with her to some of these tests to figure it out? 
Right. So I did, and I didn't know how to advocate for her. I couldn't read the tests. I didn't have that specialty knowledge. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I transitioned into vascular surgery and ran a vascular clinic with a doctor that's now on our board for the nonprofit oh, and wow. uh, a nurse that was uh, now 40 years. She's retired, and she's actually a, the lead specialist on our beneficiary relations side. So, like, really good people. Um, and through that three years that I worked there, I was actually diagnosed with a rare vascular condition that's called popliteal artery entrapment syndrome that means that the way I was born, you know, you've got two heads of your calf, somebody that's really lean, mm-hmm. you see two big muscle peaks. Yep. There's a bundle of stuff that runs through the middle of that groove and it's your artery that brings oxygen rich blood down to your foot. It's a vein that brings the oxygen depleted blood back to your heart. And it's also like a nerve. Mm-hmm. Usually they're unentrapped. They're, they just like, they do their thing. Everything does its thing in concert. Mine sort of wove around the structures. So From every- From working out? from any movement of my calf wow. over my life. So the reason it all of a sudden presented in my like sort of mid to later 20s was because the artery, you know, like if you grab a rake with your hands, your hands aren't gonna get calloused. But if you rake an entire yard, you're gonna get calloused. Yes. Well, over those two decades, that pressure on the artery wall, which has several layers, one of which is a muscular wall, got thick to callous up from the impingement. Mm. But that actually ends up cutting Choking off its own up. blood flow. Right. Wow. So that's why all of a sudden it presents because once you get 70% or more of that vessel blocking off, that's when you get symptoms. Are you in danger of that happening in your other leg? Yeah, it's in both of my legs. And the only way to get rid of my problem, since the issue is two centimeters above my joint lines, is above me on both sides. Wow. So I was literally in this position. I loved being a surgical PA. I worked alongside this brilliant surgeon. And among many of the vascular procedures that we did, we also created amputees. We did toe, leg amps, you know, through all different levels. Um, And I didn't know I was going to lose my leg when I took the job, but I knew that I had vascular bypasses. So I'm dealing with, you know, perioperative and postoperative major complications, um, seeing the the fear and the pain and the sadness and the and the just desperation in the patients and their families' lives who have no idea what they're about to embark in. And also from a personal perspective, these people, most of them are much, much older than me, much, much sicker than me, have made terrible choices in their life that have sort of led them to be in that place. And I don't identify with any of that. Right. So now I'm like on this island where I'm having to dissociate completely from my future once I get to the point where I find out I'm going to be an amputee to improve my quality of life because I can't identify with that while I'm treating these people or I won't be able to work. And I have to work to be able to support the medical bills. So it's like for six months. Yeah, dude. For six months, I was numb. And um, it was a really wild perspective to be both in the bedside as a patient while I'm working at the bedside as the clinician. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so blessed now, but it was a, a really hard time. Yeah. And then, so you go through that, that must've been, I mean, I couldn't even imagine going through A lot through of that. wine, Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> wine will help you, right? Good for blood flow. Ah. Uh, well, it only soothes it for a short period of time. Um, now, you go through all of that and then that's not the end of your trauma. Mm. Your story is tough. You end up going through all of that and then, you know, to put the icing on the cake, once the surgery is done, I was very lucky when I had my surgery done and I went through my accident, I had an incredible support group to be there for me. For you, I don't believe that was the case. Yeah, so is my- Is that something you're- Yeah, I mean, let's just- I try to, I've practiced this so many times because I really do believe that the way to come together is to share our our vulnerabilities and some of the, the hardest parts because everybody can 
see the highlight reels, mm. you know, but to reveal your cards in the hardest parts of your journey, the parts that you felt like a failure in, the parts that you felt like were not the best you or didn't I you know show the best picturesque version of what you're supposed to be. Um, I think that's what people can relate to because, yes. and that's what people hide. And then when they hide that, it creates this disingenuous society mm. where we don't really have that deeper connection. You know, as a segue, and I'll answer your question, but the conversations and the relationships that I build with amputees in this community and anybody with a disability is like such a deeper, you start at such a deeper level with people because all that superficial stuff, you don't hide in that nonsense anymore. Yes. And it's a really beautiful place to, to connect. That's why I love the amputee community. Right? I know. Um, so my husband left me. Um, I had a really hard time with the dealing with my my fate. I was identified, well, I had identified my whole life as a, a physical person. I'd gone to school for exercise science with a minor in nutrition. I had a very, very high level gymnast um, you know, background at a D1 competitive cheerleading for elite travel teams and went to school for the thing and then was going to like run professional corporate programs. And I had had serendipitously a knee surgery that made me question like, if I'm not the top physical peak of myself, like I probably am not going to be able to fit this role for my life. And if I'm a childbearing person or if uh, something happens to me, this, that could be a you know, consideration for my career. And I'm so grateful that I had that premonition because obviously here we are, but, um, that's what led me into studying physician assistant studies. And that's through the path of where I met my husband now ex we met in the, in a pool. I was a PA. I had life by the horns. I was mm. like living large, making more money than I could spend brand new Jeep Wrangler for the first time in my life. I'm one of those girls. Uh, and, uh, you know, living large. And one of my girlfriends called and said, Hey, do you want to come to Vegas for the weekend? And I met him in a pool party in the middle of a Las Vegas MGM's Wet Republic pool party. He knew me from the CrossFit gym because the last time we had seen each other, we were gas masked, jump roping in a CrossFit gym the week before. What? On the other side of the country. And he swam up to me and, he, and he's six, seven. And so like a shadow comes over me. And he was like, are you Tina Hurley? And genuinely, my first concern was safety. Like I was like, what is, like I'm far away from home. this. And then he, he looked the way he looked and I was like, well, it could be worse. And then yeah. uh, we ended up knowing each other. So uh, it was a beautiful journey. And honestly, it was a lot of why I stayed mentally so afloat throughout 13 surgeries in less than three years and recurrent terrible, terrible outcomes was because of this like budding love story that paralleled the tragedy. So in that process, I had really put a lot of vested energy into the fact that I was strong because of him. Yes. I was okay because I had him. And, you know, even though my health was failing, this relationship was budding. And so I had validity. I had these things because of. And the reason I shared that whole story was because when six weeks after my amputation, one day after a one year wedding anniversary, I came home and all of his stuff was gone from the house. Um, that, I mean, that shattered me. Like I've yeah. never been outright suicidal, um, but I very easily can see how it gets there. For three weeks, I gave up. I, I physically... Like the last little bit of carpet had been pulled and um, I couldn't eat. Like I was so clinically depressed. I couldn't eat. And because I couldn't eat, I didn't have energy to get around my house. And because I couldn't get around my house, I couldn't care for my two dogs in a three floor house on 60 acres of conservation. I was calling neighbors to come help me take care of feeding my dogs under the guise of not being home. Mm. And then a friend broke in. She broke it. I was ending every call. You don't want to be seen like that. Right. When you've got ego and you've got pride, that's like some of the biggest pusher in your life, but also it's like the biggest Achilles heel. Right. And she broke in and she found me and she's like, what? I'd lost 30 pounds of muscle atrophy in three weeks. <sighs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So it leveled me. It was a, uh, but it also rebirthed me. And right. it was only through 
stripping away all of my safeties and all of my comforts. I mean, I had to sell my home. I had to rehome my dogs. I lived, all my stuff eventually fit into seven boxes after I had an estate sale. And I was able to, at that point, go, all right, now what? It's much like an alcoholic that hits rock bottom. And yes. it's only until they do that that they end up becoming sober. Like, You hit the hard reset. You have to figure out, who am I? Yeah. Like, who am I without that stuff? Without the white picket fence and the six-figure income and all these things that like made me feel valid, my capacity to move. Like, who's Tina? And what do I want? And what is important? And the answer eventually, through like a really fun path, became legacy. I, I want it to all before something. I don't and, want it to be in vain. And so I imagine that was the spark for less leg, more heart, because from what I'm seeing on the outside, it's like you went through this thing and you want to make sure nobody ever has to go through that again. So can you explain to everyone how less leg, more heart has a much greater, a greater approach than just providing people with one thing that they need? Um, you always say it's a, uh, uh, What's the word? Uh, it's like a support advocation system? Or? Yeah, but you, you say it's very general. Oh, intentionally vague. Intentionally vague. That, that's the term you always use, and yeah. I like that. But tell us what you mean by it being intentionally vague. Yeah, so there's a lot of people that don't fit in a box. There's a lot of things that people need that they may not even know that they need. There's a lot of things that people need that change over time. And if you're an organization that captures the data on somebody that's asking for th something that they need or want at that time, without further screening or assessment of the complete psychosocial and socioeconomic evaluation of that person, how do you really know that the thing you're giving them is really setting them up for the best success? Right. And how do you also, if you did all of that stuff, provide stuff to people that's palatable where they don't just do the whole like glaze over and it's way too much information and they don't pursue any of it? Like most of what happens in America when yeah. you're being treated for something. You go home with a discharge paperwork packet. Who's ever read that? Right. No one. Um, and good thing because they're half the time wrong and because I did them and I've seen them. Um, it's not that I did all the wrong ones advocating for people. It didn't come out right, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, the, I think the overarching piece is that everybody's unique and there are so many service and, and uh, good offerings and support and educations that are out there that they're like pieces of bread that are floating in the ocean. Mm. And nobody's really octopus them together. There's some organizations that have tried. Um, and I think that we're part of the solution. I want to join together with the nonprofit and the for-profit sector to collaboratively help the population of people with any acquired ambulatory condition right now, just amputees. But the only way to do that is by embracing that uniqueness. And so I worked with um, some a board of advisors when I first started the concept of this back in 2018. And I thought, okay, so what are the what are the four main pillars of service that people need to be successful in transitioning into disabled living? Because your whole life got turned upside down. Oh yeah. You knew how to do all the things. Something happens. You're now dealing with the trauma and the grief of now transitioning your identity at the same time that you're having to relearn to do everything and figure out where all the resources are. And maybe you're on pain medication and you have other associated losses. Maybe on your motorcycle, your wife died on the back of the thing, or maybe your husband had just let, like, right. you have so, you have such multifaceted trauma that you're just trying to process that like the last of your energy is not going to go toward finding resources. You're just gonna suffer in silence. Right, it's like you need to be provided that. Yeah, exactly, and you need to be told what it is that you need because you don't know when you're right. starting. Right. So our organization figured out like mentorship, advocacy kind of education was really, really important. Let me link you to people that are like you and families. Like if you're a mother of someone, let me link you to another mother of someone so you don't feel alone. Right. Um, educate you about certain resources or different processes or let me explain that test result to you so it doesn't feel like you are not an active participant in the care of your the direction of your care mm -hmm. um and then the other piece was like 
well, how do we provide them with stuff, intentionally vague, that allows for the expansive nature of the items that would improve their wellness? Well, I'd just say fun, holistic approaches to care. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you like go. that's a big enough umbrella, right. uh, which really is just um, gym membership, supplementation, adaptive recreation modifications, entry fees into an adaptive program. Maybe it's extra PT therapy sessions or holistic counseling, anything, right. Anything that's going to, you could tell me that you want a pool cue because it reminded you of that time. Grandpa persevered through that big thing in the world war. And that gives you hope, right? That's going to get you a damn cue ball because every other approach is so this is what we do. This is going to work for everyone. And then it doesn't work for anyone. Yeah. And then we also do funding for home services when people can't get the things they need from local services. So we like to utilize vocational rehabilitation in order to, we want to provide funding from the avenues that are already doing it well, mm. and then reserve the donor funds that we've received to fill the holes in their care. And so it's obviously kind of complicated. I have an incredible team of, um, clinical staff trained people in the organization that run through about an hour conversation where we really do go through a beautiful conversation and question and answer that's much like when you first meet a doctor or a specialist for the first time, but a lot better and more thorough where we really dig in. Who is your biggest support? What are your biggest challenges right now? What are your current goals? Tell me your height and weight. What is your... Um, you know, home structure like? Is there any things in your bathroom? How do you shower? How are you driving? Are you right, getting you're looking for issues to oh, solve? We're taking every rock and pulling it and looking underneath it. At the end of that, we screen it to go, all right, where, where on the life cycle of disability is this person? Are they preoperative? Have they had their, are they just in the hospital? Do we need to expedite their services because this is the best moment of augment that we can change their, their course? Or are they post-op? And at what stage of post-op are they? And why are they still at such a loss if they're three years? Is it mental barriers? Is it site, site, you know, uh, financial barriers? And we can figure out how to customize what we give to them. Maybe it's just, you need to immerse yourself in the community because it seems like you're in pre-contemplation about a lot of changes that you need to make that we can tell you, but we know you're not ready there. Mm. So let's get you involved in some support groups. Here's, here's what they are. Uh, you're going to slip and fall in your shower. Why don't we come out and outfit your bathroom and get a local contractor that we work with to do in-kind donations to help make your bathroom safe? Um, we basically customize the award that we give them. And then our team follows up at one, three, six, and 12 months the first year and every six months after that. So we are with them like a barnacle through the tide, right. like the whole way. That is the greatest approach I've ever heard of, of anyone trying to help anyone else. I mean, there's nothing you're not hitting on. And have you ever seen, like, how did you even come up with that? I, because was, there's no yeah. way, I, I doubt there's anyone anywhere doing anything like That's that. That's why I did it was because... When I became an amputee and my anniversary is in seven, it's well, seven years this coming um, July, there was a lot of stuff that was available. You know, the Boston um, Marathon bombing had already happened. And of mm -hmm. course, we're coming up on the anniversary. Um, and so there was a lot more awareness about limb loss. I come from a very, very dense veteran community. Um, you know, my family's all veterans. There was, there was a lot of limb loss that I'd seen. I'd been exposed to the Adaptive Training Foundation where people that had amputations came from all over after that. I knew some stuff. Like I, I was slowly exposed to it. But even still then and only, and even now, I'm finding these groups, these organizations, these companies, because everybody is all over the place and um, I suffered a lot because of it I went without because of it I felt like I qualified for some things and then I didn't for other things and I had to spend time right your time is like your most valuable thing and I had to spend all this time researching this stuff and then doing the application stuff and then doing the follow-ups up for, for several different places and it was exhausting and quite frankly like I didn't apply for a lot of stuff that I could have gotten assistance for just because 
I was zapped. My bandwidth was so depleted, yeah. which is a lot of the people that are going through this. They don't have that vitality that makes you no, go do all the things. Lowest, and that's like the, when you don't want to go do anything and that's when you need to go do it. Right. So I was like, I need to be broad. But then my, you know, my trusted counsel was like, I mean, that's cool. But how are you going to manage that volume? You know, we got a lot of national exposure. I'd done a lot of things as an athlete. And uh, we were on the front of a couple of magazines that went all over the country. And we were treating it initially. My, so per IRS documentation, our organization is a tax-exempt entity for any acquired ambulatory condition. At, to start, I was actually helping people that had spinal cord injuries, neuromuscular diagnoses like MS and Parkinson's, um, and amputees. And what I found very quickly, which was exactly what they had told me to start with, that I was a stubborn lady, <laughs> was that's too much. But I couldn't conceive of having the knowledge as a medical clinician and having someone with MS call me and go, I need your help. And I'm like, oh, sorry, you got two legs. I couldn't, de I couldn't cope with that, Yeah. but I had, I had to, I had to narrow my inclusion criteria to amputees because in order to do it effectively and with excellence, I needed to keep up our supply with our demand. And it's always a struggle, but eventually that is the vision that right. we grow to have an, a neuromuscular sector, a spinal cord sector to help supplement what's already out there. I feel like spinal cord's a little bit further along than we are, mm -hmm. you know, Dana Reed Foundation and all these other places. Um, but there's a lot of folks in the neuromuscular community also that need help. And so as this ball grows and as this vision gets bigger and quite frankly, the funding for it getting bigger, because the only limitation is funding. If right. I could hire an executive director to do the business side better than me, and if I could hire people to do my clinical side and then we could put ourselves into 12 trauma centers, we'd be fine. Right. But it's like, there's so much to learn, right? But it's uh, that's the reason was through my own suffering. It was like, how do we encompass all of it? It's incredible. So with all that being said, money is the issue. Yeah. And that's the one part in this where I feel like I can help and that's what I'm gonna do. So with that being said, visit my donation page. This is a little call to action uh, because the, the only way that we can help on the outside of this great foundation that just, it blows my mind what you're doing and the way you speak so eloquently about it. Like you're, it's not a big deal. It's like, I feel like that's how care should be in America for everything. Well, I think it's humility. I know that I had the idea because of the struggling that I went through. I right. created the concept, but it's honestly because I'm repaying the kindness and the love of my community, of my family, of the people that kept the pieces together. Right. And I feel a debt to pay that forward. That's exactly how I feel. But yeah, and but the other piece of that is like, if we don't take accountability for the service that we can provide with our skills and our knowledge to our community, then what are we like what are we here for? Right. You know, I mean what 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 does your life mean? You know, you may not be in history books and you may not be a politician and all these other things, but like what was it all for? Why did you wake up every day? Why did you brush your teeth every day? Like what, why? And people don't pause to think about that. That's why we talk about that a lot on this podcast. And like Zach's big, you know, Zach, who is not here right now, his big, his mission, we call it, cause he's mission over commission is to get people out of the rat race so they can focus on things like that, that actually have real meaning rather than just waking up every day and struggling to survive. Um, but it takes intentional time. Like there are not right. many people that wake up and the first thing that they do is like connect with themselves. 
or sit and do like a meditation or, you know, journal about like, what's the most important thing today and actually make the priority that that most important thing is actually like self-care or, um, presentness. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've waited in the line at Dunkin' Donuts. Cause I probably have a problem with it cause I'm a mom <laughs> and I need caffeine, but no one has eye contact. Nobody right. talks to each other. There's no camaraderie. Like I'll intentionally stand too close to somebody, give them a smile. People always think I'm trying to sell them something. It's but like, like shock just to, to be people. present. Like yeah. for yourself and your community. I practice that a lot. And I think a lot of people should do it, but it, it's weird. It's like this numbness that everybody has. And yeah. I, I think it's attributed to the rat race lifestyle that we are all living. Well, people have abused it. You know, it's like people, there's sales and people try to do, they do try to sell you stuff. And there's, there's all these ulterior motives to, I mean, just being an amputee. We didn't know how much money they made on us. Mm. Like the, 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 the agenda behind people's intentions are never clear until they become clear. And so right. you're always leading in with like a skeptical heart instead of like an openness to the things around you, you become a little bit hardened and calloused. And that's the biggest challenge that I've had to have on this journey is how do I maintain a tenderness and a compassion and an openness and, an, and a vulnerability to being hurt when mm. I feel like I've exceeded that capacity before. And that's a, that's a journey that you just continue on with, you know? Mm-hmm. So other things I want to talk about real quick, yeah. because that was all beautiful. Uh, we're out here for the Levitate test run. Yeah. Welcome. You brought like some warm weather. Yeah. It's 84 degrees totally in New Hampshire. <laughs> New yeah. Hampshire. Yeah. Some of the other crew had like a maple syrup and apple uh, pancakes today or something like really <laughs> yeah. hitting it authentically. Yeah. What, uh, what are your thoughts going into this? uh, event and what are you, what are your expectations? Tell us about what you're thinking. Yeah. You know, I'm just, I feel really lucky that the universal power interventional divinity, whatever it is, um, you know, led me to connect with an amputee down in Texas that connected me with Lasse that connected me to you that like, I mean, that was the, the nightest for all of this. We've got a room full of people passionate about helping people and all working together on an initiative from all over uh, the world, actually. Mm. I mean, that's so rare. I feel like, I guess the first thing is just so blessed, um, honored and humbled that like, that this happened. It's such a beautiful thing. Um, and I'm excited, you know, I'm excited to meet these people that I've seen remotely and to like look them in the eye directly without a screen and blue light and, mm. um, and to watch the lives that are changed. You know, I remember when I got a leg that moved well for the first time or a blade that, you know, was not a regular leg and it wasn't a levitate blade, but not as good as it, but, um, the, the world of a possibility that that opens up. And I'm really excited to just watch that joy, that like childlike wonderment yes. that, that lights up in people when they recognize that all the self-limiting beliefs that they had or the, the boxes that people have put them in because just of shattered, shattered. Yeah. and it's like a palpable moment. It's like, you see that thing and sometimes there's tears and sometimes there's That's wahoos I, and like, I'm I jazzed. haven't missed a test run yet because, oh, maybe I did miss one. Uh, but I think it was a smaller one. Somebody didn't notify me about it. I would have been there. It's um, just those moments are the, are you'll never, it's like a marriage. It's like you introducing Mr. And Mrs. That, that quick moment of capture that's less than five seconds is happening to several people. And then also because of our collective efforts, Levitate making the product and helping us with some of the tech stuff, you putting out the content and being an amazing influencer and fundraiser and us also helping to facilitate it and some of the other ambassadors, we're gonna be able to give some running blades away. So mm. like having people come try it is so cool. People travel all over just to get that freedom and that sense of movement. And then imagine that you get to try a thing and then you can't have it right away because you have to raise money, which isn't unattainable. They only sell it for 2000. Right. We're not only providing a platform for them to fundraise for themselves or others, but we're also because of the fundraising, giving them that leg and to have a hand in participating in the collective effort for that. 
um, it's just, it's so cool. And I'm, and I'm also really excited that my, my son's going to be there. He's two and a half. And, um, Wait. you know, you, yeah, you as a new parent, like your adversity becomes their advantage and having them grow up in a community that's humanitarian and philanthropic and camaraderie esque for lack of better word. Um, I'm really honored that that trial and tribulation has created that sort of triumph in the direction and the narration of his life. It really is beautiful. All the amazing opportunities that has shined onto my life and the people it's put me around. And I got to say, this is probably one of the most proud things when I go to bed at night and I think about what we're able to do through the community we've created. It's like, it's unreal. I'm just so excited for the future and what it holds at this point. Um, especially for Saturday. Yeah. Cause that camaraderie, it feels like you already understand what it's going to be. And it's, it's exactly everything you're saying. If you feel that you're part of this community or you want to be part of this community, uh, why don't you reach out to us and you can become uh, a peer to peer fundraiser as well. Uh, you know, like you just said, we're probably just going to throw that right in there. Nice. Um, I mean, it's really easy, right? You just literally get an email invite, right? You get to customize your page or you don't even have to. And then you just share the URL on social or through text or through email. It doesn't email. cost you money. It takes about two seconds and only good can come of it. And also too, I think the big drawing point for some of the people that have signed on, I mean, we just had a girl from Ireland that just signed up because yep. to raise funds for U.S. amputees because she gets to participate in the giving. So the backend technology, which I think is important, allows for us to see exactly who's raising funds and exactly when they get to $2,000 every time. Mm -hmm. When they do, they get to actually be called in or physically or you know remotely present to be part of that journey. And I think that's a good community bonding piece and why uh, it's a little special and different of a fundraiser. So earlier today, you actually interviewed me first on your TV show. That's true. Tell us how you came into having your own TV show. And what was the name of it? Is it just Less Leg, More? Yeah, Less Leg, More Heart, More Heart. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful twisty path, right? Uh, you don't know things until you find them out. And so I was a Rotarian, you know, it's a, international society of do-gooders basically every major town city country um, has a rotary and uh, it's collective members of the community that get together and try to promote the general well-being of the community so i was a rotarian and as part of the weekly meetings they would have somebody from the community in that town come and speak about the services or the company or whatever so that the members of the rotary would be better equipped to refer and understand the internet network of the of the community so um one guy came in and he ran an access TV studio and he was talking all about how these city access TV studios are funded and, um, you know, educating people about that, like a percentage of every major streaming and cable or, um, you know, like uh, Xfinity or Comcast, they pay a percentage to the local access TVs in order for them to have spots where they can plug into the system. Mm -hmm. Those percentages go toward funding the state recreation coverages. Like, you know how like towns cover their football right. or their state politics or their city politics. That's all funded by the major networks. Oh, so wow. I'm like intrigued by it. And, you know, uh, then they said, oh, also we, because of the funding, we offer our studio to nonprofits free of charge. Um, and we, you know, we're looking for someone to fill that seat. We, we want some content for the community. And it's also a cross-referenced community. So every cable TV channel, they all are linked together on a major platform. So you can make content at one of these places for free as a nonprofit and they can disseminate it to all the cable TVs. That's correct. So like, and what I, a good resource to take. I know I'm sitting there and you know, I, the background of my life, like I went to school for communications. I wanted to be literally like my dream job when I was growing up was I wanted to be 
the next Katie Couric when she was <laughs> when she was at that time not even near the point where she is now like an, ex, an exiting. But uh, circumstances happened in my life that I that I haven't actually touched on ever on on set that um, derailed that and ended up going into a different direction where I pursued exercise science. And I've always uh, loved just people, like talking to people. And I didn't know about the camera piece, like. But at that point, when this came up about two years ago. I had already had like four years of public speaking under my belt. I had done some pretty big um, speaking engagements. And so the nerves of like talking were kind of out of my system. Right. It took a bit. You know, it's not normal. It doesn't oh, feel comfortable for a while, right? I was uncomfortable for about a year. Yeah. So, but <laughs> but that was largely shaken out. And also like it was, always, it was always about my story and about the nonprofit and about the person and their story that I brought on. And so like the pressure, I wasn't presenting a major case study to a team of collegiate scholars that I right. knew would know that I was BS or whatever, right? So it was, uh, there's no way to go wrong. Um, right. And so I went in and they're wonderful and they've been super flexible. And I brought on people, uh, my first show ever was Scott Rigsby, who's the first ever bilateral uh, amputee to compete and complete the Hawaiian Ironman. He wrote the book Unthinkable. He's a personal friend uh -huh. of mine. Uh, so he like came up for that, which was like so, so cool. I've had Boston Marathon bomb survivor um, on there talking about service dogs all the way to like community, uh, you know, companies that I think are making good stuff or companies that are coming from across the country that like make a thing that our demographic should be aware of um, or stories of inspiration. Like it's kind of a platform that I can do whatever I want with. Right. And the selling piece of it was I'm the producer. So I get their studio and I get rights to the content. So I have an entire drive full of video. I don't know how to edit it and I don't have a volunteer for that yet, but like I have all this content. So at some point during the evolution of the organization, that stuff will be turned into stuff. And that Reels. we needed content a couple of years. It's always about that, right? So yeah, I was it excited. certainly helps. I mean, that's something you should look into is having someone process all that footage. And yeah, if you guys know anybody that wants to edit video. any kind of media, you can, be, you can be on a remote island in the middle of the who knows body of water because it's all <laughs> on Google Drive and we need help. It's not my thing. I'm just a very very humble uh, medical clinician that happened to fall into business that doesn't have those skill sets. And quite frankly, as the mother of a two-year-old, I ain't got the time for that. Yeah. You know, I ain't oh, got the time. I believe it. So I just <laughs> had my baby, what, five days ago. I can't wait. I got a question for you. Any advice? So much. So, so much. A whole other podcast worth? Oh my God. I mean, I'll give you a couple give of quick ones. Give me your best. Yeah. What, what do you got? Parent guilt is by far the worst thing I've ever experienced. It's worse than experiencing it right now. Yeah. It's worse than, um, losing my leg, having my husband leave me. It's worse than all that feeling like you're never doing enough, going far enough. They're watching too much TV. I haven't given them spirulina capsules or like, mm. uh, they, they get sick and you were like, Oh, I was sick and I gave it to them. Like there's just so many avenues on the life of this journey. And I'm only two years in to like beat the heck out of yourself mm. that, um, practicing giving yourself some grace and like trying to let okay be good enough and that you're going to stumble along the way and that like everybody's just figuring it out with your first kid and um just grace and just cut myself a little slack it's hard because you know you're motivated you're a driven person it's your first kid uh you know i did all the things i i would take organic bags of vegetables doing it alone after four months and um so i'm breastfeeding and i'm trying to get my fitness back on and of course i'm running this business and i'm like finding recipes of organic baby puree to make uh, my own to mix in <laughs> coconut oil because i hear that's a thing and some turmeric and i'm like oh. i already bought the magic bullet just to do it. <laughs> don't buy the damn cans 
by the damn pouches. Like oh, you funny. are not less of a human because right. you take a more convenient route. The kid's going to be fine. I've already given my, given myself the self-talk. Like I keep talking about all this crazy stuff I want to do for her. And it's like, I grew up fine and I was drinking out of the spigot. My and dad all but put me on the front of his Harley Davidson, strapped <laughs> me to the front of his motorcycle yeah. at two to go get some butt heavy. Yep. And I'm here with you yep. today. So like, it's okay. Yeah. Both sides of the spectrum. That's the biggest one, I think, is just the parent guilt piece. And then the other piece is like um, embrace the opportunity to disconnect from everything but them. They just want your attention. Like they, they just want, it doesn't matter where you're living, what you give them. um, They literally just want your love and attention. Mm. And so like, that's been a big change for me is like, you know, going from a single life to literally like just being completely immersed in like Bluey or uh, watching something for the 18th time that they're still so excited on. I have to repeat. There's like, have you seen Planes yet? Planes? No. Yeah, on Disney, whatever. You're going to, I'll I'll get you all the shows. Oh, maybe I But did. anyway, there's like, like Thomas the Train, but it's all planes? Yeah, sure. It's yes. all planes with faces on the front of yes, them, Yes, right? yes. But it's like more than that. And I kind of love it. But anyway, so like there's we'll a Spanish, it. there's a Spanish plane and he's like, he's one of the good racers. And you know, the, the plane that's the main character, uh, Dusty Krophofer, um, Dusty he, he makes friends with him and he's trying to serenade the other plane woman who's like foreign and sexy. And like, he's trying to go, I'm just a love machine. And he's like, the pace is too fast. It's not swanky. And so the other plane like pulls the plug and he's like, no, amigo, you need to go slow, <laughs> slow and They're low. teaching the kids swag. And so, and, and then he serenades, I'm just a love machine. <laughs> like, it, and it's good. Right. And every single time the 11 second clip of that, like sultry song ends, my, my son just goes, Moa? 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 <laughs> and I have to play it like 15 times. And by the 11th one, I'm like, I just can't. And then I'm like, I can. You know, so those mo- in those moments, realize how important it is and just let yourself be like fully present because it goes so fast. Right. I blinked from when I had my son. Like I have a picture with my son breastfeeding. Like I just held him for the first time and like I'm almost two and a half years in. Like it really does go so yeah, fast. That's what everyone's telling me. So turn off and give yourself, you know, you're so driven that if things go a little slower in the next couple of years because you get to soak your child up, it's done in four. Like they're not babies. Right. Like, so, and that's a hard I'm thing. I'm prepared to turn everything off. Yeah. Um, unfortunately. Or Auntie Tina can watch her. I'm yeah. Happy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm just going to have all my shirts are going to have a sack right here. Yeah. I'm just going to carry it kangaroo pouch. It's going to get weird when she's five and I still have her right here. But <laughs> you guys can live with it. I don't care. Yeah, those are my two biggest ones. It's just like disconnect, be in it, and and give yourself, cut yourself some slack. All right. Well, I appreciate that, and I'll take it to heart. Um, another thing I want to ask you, because I'm sure you you'll have an amazing answer for this, is what of of all the help that you've provided for people, what moment stands out to you the most, and really cements, you know, uh, uh having a hard time articulating that. What is there a moment that stands out to you where you look back and say, wow, all of this effort I've put into this is really paying off. Like someone reached out to you and said, oh my God, if it wasn't for less, like more heart, I don't know where I'd be. Is there one moment that stands out for you? And if so, can you speak about it? Yeah, there's a lot of those. You know, we do that beneficiary follow-up or we do follow-up sort of testimony. And it's always really humbling to see uh, the impact, right? Like the impact that that makes, cause you're doing good because you know, it's good, but you don't really understand like how much good it did until you hear right. one of the cases I was living in Texas and it was just sort of like a new organization. So I didn't have a ton of funding. I had my model, my service model done, but like I was kind of manning it 
myself at that point with my board. And um, I'd gone into an archery shop. People may not know, but I was a very skilled archer growing up. What don't uh, you do? I loved it before my <laughs> eyes got old. But yeah, no, I loved archery. My dad, that's how we all bonded when we were young. And um, so I went into a bow shop when I was in Texas just to shoot free range for, for a couple hours. And I was talking to the owner and I was like, listen, if any amputees come in here, you know, you if if you feel like they express any need to want to do stuff more or have things modified or get some free range time, I would love to purchase like a bow for them or give them time on the range if you feel like that would help them feel good. Literally less than two days later, I got a phone call from the owner that said he had just given my card to an amputee that came in that brought two of his kids. He has three kids and he couldn't himself shoot because he didn't have the money to do it for the three of them. So he let his kids shoot. So he just handed my card. He said nothing about it. He's like, Hey, there's a girl that runs a thing. And she, she mentioned she wants to meet amputees. Um, it is the, it's the cover story on our website. So if you go to lessegmoreheart.com, that if you sort of scroll down a little, what's behind a smile, which was our, our, for me, like one of the biggest impacts that we've made as an organization, this guy, um, got, he was a police officer forever. His name's Jeremy Clayton. And I love you, Jeremy, if you're seeing this, he, um, was a police officer and he went down to Katrina to aid in the, the relief efforts. Mm. He, you know, hurricane water, flood water is like the grossest stuff you could ever, like I see people out there in tubes and stuff thinking it's funny. It's bad water. Like you shouldn't be in that yeah, water. I can only imagine what's he in ended there. up getting, um, an infection in his blood that caused clotting everywhere. So he, um, all of a sudden lost his leg, like really mangled. They thought he wasn't going to make it. He and his wife of 27 years at that time were in the process of adopting her nieces. So his like kind of married great nieces and nephews, because the three of them were like wildly, um, mismanaged by their parents. Like it was a mm. bad situation. They were unsafe. One of the kids had had just needed a heart surgery, the one of the young boys. So Jeremy being the good guy, he was the servant. He was adopting these kids that weren't even like blood, his family in the middle of that adoption process. And it makes me so emotional. He adopted the three kids on his own because his wife of 27 years in the middle of all of that found somebody else and said she didn't love him anymore and left him. So when I met him, he was living in this like really tough shape home um, with these three children that were his. He claimed them, you are my kids. Like he, that, that was all they knew and gave them everything. He had a leg that was like wearing his skin off. Um, he, he didn't have money for groceries. His home was in destitute. He didn't have a vehicle that was reliable. He had a bill that was about to be, his gas and electricity was about to be turned off. Like he was literally at a point where everything was about to be lost. And like probably the human services were gonna come get the kids. Like it was, but they had such love for each other. And despite all of that craziness, he was still managing to try to get them out so that they could feel like kids to go shoot. Mm. Like what? So I'm like bawling on this Zoom call with this guy. I'm like, I didn't know. I just called him because I thought he wanted some range time. So I'm right. like, hey, Jeremy, my name's Tina. Walked into a storm. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, so, and then, you know, what is it that you need? Oh, it would be really cool to have some range. I am so, so grateful. Thank you so, so much. And I'm like, oh yeah, but, I, but I'm not done with you yet. So uh, I got a lot of other questions for you. And it was in that process of the Q&A of our intake that I was like, what? Like, there are so many other things that you need help with. And um, so we were able to like keep his lights on. We actually worked with an auto company that got him a reliable car. We worked with another financial fraternal organization that got um, donations of gift cards for groceries. We got a whole truck full of groceries to his home, did house modifications. We worked with the mayor of the city to get school supplies for all the children for that semester. We got him to a prosthetist. I personally drove him there, got him a new leg. Um, 
And, you know, he still has a really hard time. You know, that's not a circumstance that you're going to be able to fix really, you know, Um, it's a, it's a chronic need, but he's still out there. He's still struggling and fighting every day. But that act self-reported, like we've cried together, but like, I didn't know every morning when he woke up, he was like close to pulling the trigger. Hmm. And the only reason he couldn't do it was because those kids would have nothing. Right. Imagine that the only reason that you are alive is because you need to shelter other people, but you wish you were dead. That is a hell that I hope and to never And the only experience. reason he didn't do it and go that direction was because somebody extended a hand. And it doesn't matter that it was me. It's just that like the course of events that led him to be in a place where he was able to make a connection was such a beautiful thing to be part of. I love him and his family. I send the messages all the time. He made me, he's a great like um, hobbyist. He made this, he's very um, religious and he made me this like horseshoe cross and like I've carried it from Texas to Chicago to Wisconsin now to New Hampshire and it sits right on my wall and I leave the door and every day I leave the door I touch it because it's the concept of you like you never know who you're going to touch right you made me cry I'm sorry oh but I love you Jeremy (laughs) he's such a good guy that's an incredible story and and it really validates the way that less like more heart functions Uh, that's the type of holistic approach that you need to actually help people rather than just here, here's a leg. Good luck. Right. And they always still need help. So it's like your job's never done. And, uh, and everybody has the ability to participate in it. Whether you give money, you give your time, you make a damn casserole. Don't ask, don't wait for people to ask for help. Right. Just bring the food, do the thing. Yeah. Because people don't ask. It's hard to ask. And he, it was very hard for him to ask. And that's why he got so far, um, but watch the video on our website. It's really beautiful. That is beautiful. My God. You got me. You got a little something here. So. Yeah, I'm, I know. I'm, it's going to go for a bit. <laughs> I don't think about him in that way often because it's just, it really is. Like, imagine you're on that call with this person and the only person they've dipped their cards to is you. Like, and you're like, oh my, like, thank God that we came together. Thank God that like, or whatever, that, that he was strong enough to actually show that he needed stuff and answer my question. He could have said he didn't want to answer. Right. And the only person that would have suffered would have been those kids. Right. So, you know, recognizing your vulnerability and the strength in that um, and letting people help you. It's so hard, but like you, you have to let people help you. It is tough to do that. But once you accept it, it makes everything a lot easier. Yeah. You deprive people. This is how it was said to me. I gave up, like I said, for three weeks, a friend broke into my house and found me. I'd lost 30 pounds of muscle atrophy. I was blah, blah, blah. My friend found me and she goes, you're selfish. Mm. I was like, what? She's like, you are letting your ego and your pride deprive the people in your life that love you the most to have the joy in being able to help you at your greatest time and need. And that's selfish. Wow. That is a wild concept for her to throw at you immediately. Yeah, and wild it's enough. it's very that- hard for people to understand that. And it's kind of like suicide. Like, yes, yeah, suicide is extremely selfish because it's like you're... You're taking something away from other people. And and even in the act of not living your life the way that you should, you're still kind of doing the same thing. And it's true. It is it is kind of selfish. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's... It was the tough love I needed. You know, not, right. not everybody... And, you know, I, suicide is selfish is a tough thing. You know, you could see it through that lens by some family members. But, uh, man, I've, I've worked real close with people that are there. And uh, there's... there it It's... That selfishness is not really the way that they 
they are. It's like the pain is, they feel like they're too doing great a, to they're bear. Do, well, they feel like they're doing a service actually to their loved ones because they are too much of a burden. And so it's actually oh, a self, true too. it's actually a selflessness that's promoting it. But, but I see the yeah. way it feels in the light of other yeah. people. Um, but yeah, it, until you can recognize the, the greater good to push through, I think it, it can just get really mucky and you, and being able to give people tough love is important. Mm. Not everybody's ready for it, but when you see the opportunity, sometimes you need a good noogie, you know? Yeah. Just get I out of your own way. I grew up all tough love. Yeah. Four brothers. Well, and look at you because of it. I will end it with this. At the end of the day, what is your message to everyone out there? There's so many. Um, I know, I feel like my, you, you know, the slogan of my organization is rise by lifting others. You know, I think, mm. I think at the end of the day, uh, and I used this quote earlier in taping, but uh, something that struck me was, you know, only when we repeatedly expose ourselves to annihilation is that which is indestructible found within us. So seek the hardest route, seek the path that's the most challenging, you know, grind, because it's in those valleys, in those gnarly little paths of bushes that you're whacking out of the way that you learn the lessons and you get the skills and those things are transferable to other people. So how do you gift that to other people? Because in doing so, you do stay lifted and risen. That was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, thank so you. Much. Thank you for having me. Um, I look forward to going to the test room with you. Yeah. That's going to be a lot of fun. We'll I get know. some more material out there. We're hoping to get a workout in too. Sounds good. I'm curious to see if you can outlift me. Uh, likely not. Pre, well, it's, it's been pre, a while for me. Pre-baby, I would have smoked you. <laughs> now I'm going to need some Tylenol and maybe a heat pack <laughs> and uh, some, I don't know, maybe a stiff margarita before. Yeah. A margarita before? I don't know what I need. I haven't done Ooh, all the things lately. I don't know if I could do. I definitely can't huh? hang with it's that. It's not a margarita. <laughs> <laughs> Sam's gonna optimize my wellness in order for me to maximize my performance for Saturday. I like that. <laughs>